Blog Talk Radio. Good Saturday morning out there in off-the-shelf land and to all of you tuning in through Blog Talk Radio or Rainbow Soul, iTunes, however you're tuning in. We want to thank you for listening to Off the Shelf, especially to our loyal listeners who we've been here now for 12 years. So we want to thank all of you to our new listeners and our, our loyal listeners and thank you for joining us. We have a wonderful author in the lineup for you here at Off the Shelf this morning. But before we get introduced to today's guests and launch into the questions, I want to, as we started doing several weeks ago, just leave you with a thought. And the thought today is if you wait until you're ready, you'll be waiting the rest of your life. If you wait until you're ready, You'll be waiting the rest of your life. And that said, something that I didn't wait to do, and I, I know our guests didn't either, and for those of you who love story, you, you stop and think about how much story impacts our lives. At the nonfiction level, we know with our, our newspaper stories, the word of mouth, our lives are filled with story from news and then novels and poetry, stories told through pictures, I'm just truly blessed and grateful to have been given given the gift to write. We all are storytellers. All of us are, not just those who gossip and make stuff up, but we all are storytellers, whether we're passing along the truth or whether we're, we're totally making something up. There is a story that I have written, and it's titled Love for Over Me. And it is, if you love mystery and you value relationships, there's a complicated relationship between a father and a son, and they're from Ohio. The son goes on to go to college at a major university in Pennsylvania. He's a he's a track and field standout. We know with the Olympics coming, he he's the guy who would have gotten the gold medal in the Olympics. He's also an academic standout, but it's the things that go on with him and his father, his father raises him as a single parent, a very complicated relationship. And then he meets a woman in college who is truly his soulmate and a motley crew of friends. If you value, again, relationships and you like to see how we actually help to shape each other, you will really enjoy Love Pour Over Me. And it's in print and ebook format. And I would love for you to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me and let me know how you enjoy it. You can also read free excerpts from Love Pour Over Me and my other books at my website, which is chistel.com, C-H-I-S-T-E-L-L.com. And I hope you do more than just think about it, but actually go over and do it and get a copy of Love Pour Over Me and let me know how you enjoy it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest for this morning. And our special off-the-shelf guest is James Hanna, and he hails from Australia. He worked in criminal justice in Indiana where he worked as a counselor. He also worked in domestic violence and stalking with the San Francisco Probation Department. He's written several short stories which have been published in Publications like Old Crow Review, the Literary Review, the California Writers Club Literary Review, and the Sand Hill Review. And James Hunter is also the author of the books The Siege and Call Me Pomeroy. You can check James out online at 
WillWriteForFood.org. We have to ask him what came up with that. And it's spelled exactly the way it sounds, W-I-L-L-W-R-I-T-E-F-O-R-F-O-O-D.org, WillWriteForFood.org. Welcome to Off the Shelf, James. Thank you, and thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. We we are so glad to have you, and your books are so interesting. I just And I encourage our listeners, again, it's willwriteforfood.org. Just read a few excerpts from his books at Amazon. Check out his books at his website, and tell me if you won't want to go out and purchase one today. He is a talented author, and he brings um, realism and a sense of humor especially to call me Pomeroy. But where did you come up with that URL from? That 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 is, we've interviewed a lot of authors, James, i got to tell you. That's <laughs> the first. Um, I just remember the um, early days when I started writing. I was uh, 24. I started writing in a little fishing village in Tasmania. And it was about 20 years before I got something published. Uh, so I think uh, we'll write for food applies. But I've had uh, a lot of success recently, so I'm not sure I'm going to be writing for food anymore. Oh, congratulations, congratulations. And, again, like I said, we are really delighted to have you on here, and I'm especially delighted. If our listeners are just being introduced to your works, just reading your works, I said he, he is very, very talented. So that's why I'm glad to have you on now. Before we launch into the questions, can you tell our off-the-shelf listeners, this is a standard question we ask each of our guests, just to give our listeners some type of a background on who they, who the author is. So before we go into the questions, can you tell off-the-shelf listeners where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? Uh, I grew up overseas. My uh, father was a foreign service officer in the State Department. And uh, we came to live in the United States when I was about uh, 15. When I was uh, 21, I was uh, pretty much bored with American life. I wanted a harder edge to life. So I caught a tramp freighter to Australia, and uh, I roamed the continent for seven years. Um, I was a uh, cowboy in the northern outback. Uh, I worked the barge runs to Timor, the crayfish boats in Tasmania. Did a lot of migrant work. And um, I did a lot of reading books. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. And, oh, and I read, uh, did a lot of reading, mostly by firelight in the uh, northern outback, and uh, developed my compulsion to write. So um, wow. I eventually returned to the United States, and I picked up uh, two degrees in criminal justice on the GI Bill. And... Um, I joined the Indiana Department of Corrections where I was a prison counselor for 20 years and a program coordinator. And after that, I joined the San Francisco Probation Department where I worked as a uh, probation officer in a domestic and uh, stalking unit. So uh, the criminal element uh, figures very strongly in, in my writing. What bored you about the United States? <laughs> There's so many different... I was talking to uh, some two, two ladies uh, recently. There's, like the South, the Northeast, the Midwest, the West, they're so different from each other right here in the U.S. It, and so many different things you can do here. I'm just curious. Was it? Do you think it's because you grew up your formative years and out of you know out of the out of the United States? 
I was just, that's interesting to me, even when I was researching for your feature interview, what was it that you found boring? Oh, well, I grew up in Iraq. Um, not, I grew up in Iraq, Iran, um, Paraguay, Brazil, uh, Germany, uh, cultures that go back uh, far longer than the uh, culture in the United States. Our culture is kind of a, an adolescent among the among cultures. So um, with these other countries as my reference point, um, I was looking for uh, more to life than I find in the United States. And um, I certainly found it in the northern outback of Australia. I spent a lot of time with the aboriginals and um, spent a lot of time in uh, a number of pretty interesting and challenging jobs. I'm pretty much an adventure junkie, and I had a lot of adventure in Australia. And, of course, the adventure uh, continued uh, with my 34-year career in criminal justice. Yeah, I'm sure. I've always wanted to visit Australia. Can you tell us a little bit more what it was like? Maybe it's when I'm when I'm listening to you now. You say you're saying reading books by firelight. Did you live outdoors? Did you have a house? Did you? What was it like for you living there? Oh, Were you I was, in the I was city living, or no? I, did you not live in the city? I lived in uh, in Sydney for a while. Um, Tasmania for a while, but I also spent a lot of time in the northern outback of Australia, um, and the cattle stations are just little little foot, uh, footholds in vast tracts of land, uh, tea tree scrubs, paper bark scrubs, mud flats, and um, most of the time I would be on horseback working cattle in the northern outback. This is country so primitive that it hasn't even achieved statehood yet. And, um, yeah, um, I spent a whole lot of time uh, at night around campfires reading. Did you watch television and listen to the radio? And it's like you're going, it's almost like I'm going back in time from what, the way you lived there. Did you, you gave, did you give up all of those, like the TV, the radio? Did you give all that up and... When, when I was in the Northern Outback, when, when I was in the Northern Outback, yes, I did. Um, when I was working the crayfish boats, um, we'd be at sea for two or three weeks at a time, and we didn't have TV or radio out there. And when when we came back to land, uh, it was hard to walk on land because you were used to the pitch and roll of the boat. So yeah, I was uh, cut off a lot. But I think there may have been an advantage in that because uh, TV can uh, desensitize you. Um, I think uh, you have uh, far more potent sources of uh, stimulation uh, through through great books, uh, and I read a lot of those. Huh? Wow. Oh, my gosh. I think we, we've had a couple of guests on who traveled abroad. One One writer, his mother actually had to flee a country uh, that she was mm-hmm. being outspoken and it wasn't accepted, and they actually had to flee. And they went to another country, and then he ended up in the United States. Now, you worked as a counselor and uh, with domestic violence and stalking offenders. Did that work, is that what inspired you to start writing your own novels? Uh, the inspiration came um, 
I think when I was 24, that's when I started writing seriously. And uh, it took me a long time to become competent at it. You mentioned in uh, one of your interviews that you can't take the elevator to success. You have to take the stairs. And that's particularly true when you're writing, unless you're a celebrity with a ghostwriter. There's there's no fast uh, track to success. So it took me a long time to learn the craft. Um, but the experiences I had in the uh, Indiana Department of Corrections and the um, San Francisco uh, Probation Department have um, supplied tremendous grist to, to my writing and um, have uh, provided me with, with some really interesting characters that I wouldn't have met any other way. Now, are any real-life experiences, as we move into talking about your books, are any real-life experiences, James, that you had while you were working in criminal justice, are any of these either directly or indirectly, do they find their way into your books, and again, even if ever so faintly so? Um, there's a lot of real-life experience in the siege. Um when you're working in the criminal justice system, there's often a serious disconnect between you and uh, management. And um, it, it does create a sense of frustration. Uh, it also sense a, creates a sense of entering a void from which you may never quite return. So uh, the uh, struggles that are experienced by uh, the character Tom Hemmings in The Siege are, are struggles that I really did experience. I was caught between a rock and a hard place when the um, institution privatized services. And um, at times I didn't really know where my loyalties uh, belonged. Uh, did it belong with the inmates who were being uh, shortchanged and exploited by the Confederate services, or, or did it belong with management that had put these contracts together? So, yes, uh, in the siege, I'm pretty much reliving what, what I experienced. Um, so how did how, can you tell us just, can you tell us briefly um and you have had such a rich life there's a commercial that comes on TV and it talks about the have people who just have things they have expensive furniture they have an expensive house uh, an expensive car but they they don't do much so they say the haves and those who have the rich experiences and you don't realize that you're wealthy because of the experiences that you have, which it takes courage to get those. You're very, very rich in your, your the experiences that you've allowed yourself uh, uh, to have. But that said, can you tell us, uh, when you talk, and I've heard so many people say the privatization of the criminal, it was really a wrong, wrong turn because it's you've got judges getting kickbacks, you've got people, there's just money, 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 and it's almost we need to fill these institutions so we can get rich. How did, from what your standpoint, how did you see it change the system and even how we, from an arrest all the way through imprisonment to probation, how did you see it change it? Because the focus shifted to money. Yes, it did. Um, actually, I implemented uh, changes when I was uh, in the Indiana Department of Correction. I was working in a medium uh, security facility, 
And after I had been there about a year, I had an epiphany. I realized that probably 85% of the inmates did not need to be at that level of incarceration. But they were being kept there because it was profitable. So I took over the um, work release uh, screening and, and referral program. And I evaluated and recommended inmates uh, for work release where they would be going to be halfway houses. Um, they could hold down jobs. They could pay into victim restitutions funds. They had more of a sense of self-worth. And I had the work release program for about eight years, and I used my writing skills uh, to write reports recommending uh, many, many inmates uh, for work release. And... Um, one of my proudest achievements is that um, in the eight years I had the program, I was able to get uh, about 500 inmates out of um, medium security uh, facilities uh, where they were stagnant and often exploited into the work release centers where they were able to lead uh, productive lives. Wow. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. And thank you, thank you for that, to, 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 to do that work. Now, can you give us, oh, before I, I have one more question I wanted to ask you before we start talking about the siege more. I had to ask you this. Which is tougher, James, because you have a lot of short story writing experience. Is that how you got started as a writer, or did you start writing novels? And which is tougher, short stories or novels? Um, I started with short stories in Australia. And then uh, I started writing The Siege. It was a 10-year effort. And to give myself a break, I wrote wow. short stories. Um, because if you're stuck on the same thing all the time, uh, you can start spinning your wheels. So, so I wrote them uh, contemporaneously, uh, which is tougher. That's hard to say. Um, with a short story, it's like building a Swiss watch. Every word has to count. Everything has to be exactly in uh, with a novel, you can you can be sloppier, but not 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 too sloppy. Um, then my first success came with um, short stories. After about 25 years of writing and honing the craft and uh, learning the pitfalls that a writer can fall into, I got my first acceptance. Um, it was a story about a manhunt in the dead of winter. And um, it was accepted by a journal, uh, now defunct, called called Crow Review. And then I placed another one in a journal called Hidden City Review. And then all of a sudden, I was placing them left and right. And after um, 25 wow. years of not getting uh, published, I, I, I couldn't believe it. And then I combined all my short stories in, into a third book, um, and it's entitled a second list capable head and other rogue stories. And it, it just came out recently for my publisher, St. Hugh Review Press. Oh, my goodness. You just you just kept at it for our off-the-shelf listeners who are tuning in and who are thinking, wow, how do you get there? How do you get there? So uh, that's why I ask these questions so our listeners can hear how our guests got from where they started to where they are. Now, now James, if you could just treat us to a brief synopsis of the siege. Okay. Um, the siege takes place at a medium security prison in Indiana. Um, inmates fed up with the um, 
problems caused by privatization take 12 guards hostage and hold them in a laundry dorm. Tom Hemmings, the point-of-view character and a dorm counselor, is conscripted to defuse the write-up, the um, uh, riot, uh, because even though he's perceived as something of a, of a maverick by the prison administration, the inmates like him. So um, he's given the job of uh, diffusing the situation. And um, in this effort, he's befriended by two inmate leaders, uh, Hamal Hassan, a member of the uh, Nation of Islam, and Chester Mahoney, a um, pedophile who is also a member of the American Gospel Party. And uh, this is a... um, Backroads organization with a strong anti-government philosophy. Uh, aligned with these characters, uh, he goes in to defuse the situation while sharpshooters are perched like crows on the top of the administration building and the emergency squads are awaiting the order to attack. And um, the pivotal moment comes when he enters the dormitory with Chester Mahoney as his spokesman in an attempt to defuse the situation. And I won't say anything more because that might uh, prove a spoiler. But, um, oh, wow. It, you, and to our listeners yeah. again, it is James' style of writing. And he said it took him 10 years to write the novel, which to me shows a healthy respect for the reader. Now, can you describe Tom Hemmings to us? Can you give us some background on him, where he's from, a little bit about his family background, how he got into his job? What kind of, what type of relations does he have with the inmates? What kind of a man is Tom? Tom Hemmings is a conflicted man. Uh, he doesn't believe in the system that uh, he's part of. Wow. But uh, he's still a champion of the system because he feels that the devils he is uh, protecting are a little more artful than the ones waiting to take their take their place. Um, I use a uh, famous quote by Nietzsche: "Look into the void, and the void will look into you." And I had this experience myself in criminal justice. Um, when you go into the void, you are being evaluated by, by the void. You are profiling um, inmates, but inmates are also profiling you. So if you look into the void, the void will look into you. And if you have a weakness, the void will find it and will use it for it, its purposes. So um, Tom Hemmings is a conflicted man who finds himself lost in the void, and he never quite finds his way out of it. But he does um, form friendships, friendships with highly flawed people. He forms friendships with um, Henry Yoakum, a sociopathic guard, with Sarah Baumgartner, uh, a loose uh, woman um, who's working as a correctional officer, Chester Mahoney. And um, these relations... Uh, I use foxfire as a metaphor to define the relationships. You only find foxfire in rotten wood, but you can read by foxfire. So Okay, okay. 
Now, what 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 causes again? And you may have said this earlier, but what causes what causes this standoff at the Indiana Pinot Farm? Yeah. I wrote the siege to dramatize the plight of anybody working in the prison industry, uh, mismanagement, danger, and contracts with cutthroat uh, privateers are a big part of the problem. Another problem is that the employee unions are generally too ineffectual to represent the line staff. Either they are in bed with management or so busy vilifying one another that uh, they've lost sight of their true mission. I also wrote it as a metaphor for America today. Like the bureaucrats in the siege, our politicians seem to have prioritized mercantilism over humanity. Thomas Jefferson is quoted as saying, the end of the democracy and the defeat of the American Revolution will occur when government falls into the hands of lending institutions and moneyed corporations. America mm. did, in, in America today, I, I think we may be close to the defeat of the American Revolution. So all these motifs, I think, are present in the, in the siege. Now, why was Tom, he was so calm. He was so calm about the riot when it first started. He was so yeah. calm. And what, what, changed his, what changed his perception? I don't want you to get a story away, but he was so calm. It was almost like you would, you would expect him to be frantic when it started, but mm-hmm. he wasn't. He was just the total opposite of what you would expect. And then what, what caused him to what change his perception? But I don't want you to get a story away at the same time. I think uh, Tom was frustrated and scared all the time, but he's kind of a disaffected character. One of my readers described Tom as the most disaffected character that she ever read about. So wow. uh, he's kind of a bubble, kind of a, an insulation around himself. When I was um, particularly in the... Uh, uh, San Francisco Probation Department. I kind of lived in a bubble because uh, I was in a position where any time the behavior of other people could impact me severely. And I, I could give you a couple of examples. So you'll, you almost have to do a self-hypnosis on yourself and say, uh, well, everything's okay until it proves otherwise. Whatever happens, happens. Because it's kind of the only way you can get through it. Um, because you're in a tense, uh, traumatic uh, situations all the time. As a probation officer, you wouldn't think that. Um, well, I was in a specialized unit, uh, a domestic violence in stalking oh, unit. Oh yes. So there was yeah, always. And, a, and my... Go ahead. Yeah. There was always the potential that uh, a client would kill his domestic uh, partner, and I did have that that experience once. Um, oh. a, a woman um, was uh, frantic. She said uh, her uh, husband was about to kill her, so I called him in and I took him into custody. And this happens all the time. By the time the case went to court. Uh, they had reconciled. So the woman stood in front of the judge. Uh, she jumped up and down and said, Your Honor, Your Honor, I lied. Please put me in jail instead because I lied. 
So the judge uh, let the guy out because uh, the judge was unable to determine a preponderance of evidence. And he got out. He went home. And then um, a, few, a few days later, I was taking the uh, Caltrain to my job, and I read an article about a body that turned up in a trunk in San Francisco Bay. And then I read a little far, further, and I recognized the name of the victim. And oh. he had, oh, yeah. he had uh, he, she had empowered him, and he had killed her. And incidentally, that story, um, I wrote it up and I put it in my new book, um, A Second Less Capable Head and Other Rogue Stories. It's the final story. It's entitled The Body in the Bay. It was recently published uh, online in Red Sabina Review, a journal that likes the really gritty stuff. And then there are a few other incidents. Also, with stalking, um, Stalkers can start stalking you if you hold them accountable uh, for their behavior. And I was so stalking myself stalk? a few times. Oh, it's stalking. oh. Yeah. Wow. I was, I was stalked myself, myself a few times. And um, one stalker um, researched myself and my wife on the Internet and then started, started making – the same death threats to my wife that he was making to Nicole Kidman. He was a celebrity stalker. So that was a really wow. unnerving experience. Oh, my gosh. You know, this, before we go on and talk, before we talk about Pomeroy, I had to ask, you know, we, listening to you, my sister was, is she's a school teacher now, but she worked as a cop. And we, we people who work at psychotherapists, any communal work, my oldest brother's a pastor, you counsel people, um, you seem to, it's almost like you, we have this hope that something's going to happen and it's all going to end and get better. And then you look at history and you say, it almost is like humanity keeps going in this circle where we, we, we come out of doing something, whether it's slavery, the Holocaust, and you think, okay, we, we're getting better. And then it's like, no, we're not getting better. We're going in a circle. Do you ever get that yeah. that feeling? And if so, what do you think uh, it would take, based on your work, to bring us out of this circle? We seem to be going in a big circle. It just you, yeah. you say we're, we've gotten we've gotten that down. We're not doing that anymore. We've gotten better, and then boom, here comes something else, and we're in the, still in the same cycle. It's like, does it really ever end? I think uh, as a writer, you want to state the problem, but you don't necessarily want to offer solutions uh, because then you turn your art into into rhetoric. Um, So with the siege, I don't offer solutions, but I want the reader to feel the experience. I I want him to see the dead bodies. I want him to smell the tear grass. I want him to in him to feel the frustrations. And um, if the writer effectively states the problem, I think he's done his job. Mm. Remember um, Tol- Tolstoy's novels, uh, Anna Karenina, mm-hmm. uh, War and Peace. The novels were weakest where uh, Tolstoy prescribes uh, solutions and uh, tries to explain the, the meaning of life. 
um, I think art, art should be pure, purer than offering solutions. Yeah. Okay. Now, how soon after you finished writing The Seed, James, did you sit down and start working on Call Me Pomeroy? And am I saying the name oh, correctly? Yes. Um, I was writing uh, Pomeroy as as the same at the same time as I was I was writing the siege. Oh. And um, okay. Pomeroy was was inspired by a lot of the um, clients I had in the um, San Francisco Hall of Justice um, clients with narcissistic personality disorders, uh, clients with explosive disorders. Um, antisocial personalities, and um, primary is a composite of these of these traits. And uh, it was also inspired by the locker room humor that I, I shared with my uh, field partner. Um, humor is very important uh, when you're in a situation like that because it helps diffuse a lot of situations, and it's it's good to have a partner that uh, keeps keeps you laughing. Um, so I was working on Pomeroy at the same time because Pomeroy just came banging on my door like a riled-up stranger demanding to be let in. It's one of those rare moments when uh, a character just explodes into your life and takes over. And with Pomeroy, I felt as if I was the medium and Pomeroy was the author. He was he was telling me what to do. Hmm. Interesting. Now, can you introduce us to Pomeroy? What's what's Pomeroy like? Okay, uh, Pomeroy is a street musician, and he's on um, he's on parole, and um, he's a, a rapper, and uh, he has a marathon ditty called "Ants in Ants in the Pants," which has about two hundred verses, and he keeps keeps writing it. So Pomeroy decides that he wants to be famous. So he heads to Occupy Oakland, and then he heads to the spinoff movements in London and uh, Paris. And he doesn't have a political agenda. His uh, agenda is to get on television, attract an agent, and get a million-dollar recording contract for his ditty called Ants in My Pants. And uh, he accidentally becomes a hero of the counterculture. He becomes a hero of the black bloc anarchists, those uh, guys who dress in black and wear Guy Fawkes masks, and um, they're Internet hackers. Uh, then in Paris, he becomes uh, affiliated with uh, Femen, uh Ukrainian girls against uh, Putin's government. And um, he becomes essentially a, a, a hero of the counterculture. This in spite of the fact that he's completely foul-mouthed, um, narcissistic, misogynistic. But he also has a, a gentle side. He likes art for art's sake. When he visits the Louvre during one of his misadventures in, in Paris, um, he's appalled that all these people are running past all these great paintings uh, just because they want to see the Mona Lisa. Uh, but Palmer sees the beauty all around him. Um, he's kind to people. Um, he protects women, even protects his, uh, rescues his parole officer, a Hispanic woman, when she's being threatened by a mob of angry tea partiers. So uh, Pomeroy is a, a 
somebody who's trapped in his uh, personality, but beneath all the buffoonery and the offensive language is uh, something very gentle that wants to get out. And I think it's the dichotomy of the character that attracts readers to him. Some readers can't get beyond the foul, foul language, but those, uh, those who do, um, I think they find a very uh, interesting and nuanced character in, in Pomeroy. Oh, okay. Was this was this Pomeroy's first attempt to make it big? Did he try to make it before he had it for Occupy Oakland? Or was this for okay, so how long had he been playing music before he had it to this Occupy Oakland? And had he ever tried to make it big before? I know you said he's rap, he keeps adding on to this song. But was this what made him if he hadn't tried to make it big before, what was it about this that made him Go, aha, this is my great opportunity. Uh, Magical thinking. Um, Ah. He really does believe that uh, if he uh, goes to occupy Oakland and gets himself on television, um, an agent is going to come running to him. Um, He's also Ah. a narcissist. So um, He's constantly trying to make it big uh, throughout all six of the primary episodes. And in the final episode, his madness is validated. Um, I, I won't uh, uh, spoil it by telling, telling you exactly what happens, but his madness is validated in the um, final story. Okay, so Pomeroy... Oh, go ahead. Oh, um, primary came came about because I was able to hook up with exactly the right journal. I sent it to a number of university presses, um, and uh, the editors praised it. One of the, ed- the editors wanted me to tone down the character; another wanted to, me to short the sto- shorten the story. But then it went to a journal called Empty Sink Publishing, and they really liked the greatest stuff. And the editors are really great. And the editor at Empty Sink Publishing saw the story uh, for what it was, and he loved it. And he made it the editor's choice in the inaugural issue of Empty Sink. And then uh, the editor started asking for more stories, so I wrote more stories that were serialized. And uh, ultimately, I wrote uh, six stories, which uh, turned into into a book, which is doing doing pretty well right now. So um, it shows you what can happen when uh, preparation meets meets opportunity. It was just yeah. magical what happened when I hooked up with this uh, particular journal. But you also have to, you know, I, I, it's, I think it's very important to also say this. When you said Pomeroy, he had magical thinking. It's, it's easy to get tripped up into that. It all, it's you also have to take action. And we, there's so many self-help and motivational books and things out here that people think if they just get pumped up enough, you, you, you actually have to take steps. If you're trying to get a job, you need a good cover letter and a resume. And if you're not getting the responses, then you have to go back and tweak and edit and change those until you get to get what you want. You might have to practice your interviews. Same Weight's not just going to fall off of you. you gotta, there's certain things you have to do. So, yes, it's good that you got that, but you spent all those years writing. You've got material for your books from the way you've 
lived your life and your different experiences, it, this stuff doesn't, doesn't just happen over overnight. And a lot of people, I, I talk to people, you see so many people just they waiting for something to come to them. You got to go get this stuff, man. You got to take actions and go get and go get these things. That said about Pomroy. Pomroy could be so many artists. Mm-hmm. Aside from some maybe particular things about him, he could be so many artists. I've talked to people who poured thousands into something that even if you watch like this show that comes on called American Greed, you look at these stories and you're like, "What are you thinking?" And and they, they just this magical thinking. They think if I do this, boom, all this is going to happen. And so Pomeroy seems to have have a, some of that going for him. That said, when you said he's in the magical thinking and the, the narcissism, does he ever hold down a real job? No, he doesn't. Um, wow. Uh, how how old? I'm sorry, James. <laughs> Y'all be going now. How old is Pomeroy? And you, he never holds a real job. No, um, and uh, he, he doesn't want much by way of handouts either. In, in um, the first episode of the Armory Stories, he says uh, he doesn't want a handout from the government uh, because he wants to stay, stay lean and hungry in order to um, develop and, and, and promote his music. Um, and although he's been in jail about... 50 times um, he's a pro-social individual um, he's oriented uh, towards a conventional goal he's not criminally oriented at all um, there's different types of um, probationers and memory um, falls under the kind of uh, probationer who is um, pro-social but has so many problems and issues that it's very hard for him to keep out of jail Mm. How old is he? Oh, he's um, 57 in the first story. and Oh, my gosh. In the final story. Wow. You really <laughs> put this character together. Oh, my goodness. Now, yeah. feedback on Call Me Pomeroy, when I was doing the research for the interview for our listeners, they say that the book mm-hmm. is hilarious. Now, did mm-hmm. did you intend on this to be a comedy of sorts? Yes, um, because when you make a book hilarious, you soften up the reader, and when the reader gets to the profound passages, they're more likely to uh, sink into him. Um, and a lot of readers... They just laugh their heads off when they read Pomeroy, and then uh, they kind of feel, wait a minute, I shouldn't be laughing at this, but I'm laughing anyway. And they keep on reading. So, yeah, I think the the humor may be the greatest hook in the book. Now, can you tell us, for our listeners who, and we have listeners here who, Again, I tell our guests, they would love to be in your shoes. There are people who would love to be published. If they just got yeah. one short story published, they would think, wow. Uh, what yeah. what process, James? I know you said it, it was a process for you, but when it comes mm-hmm. to developing your characters, and your writing is very, very good, what process do you follow to actually develop 
your characters? Um, characters need to be multidimensional, and um, characters need to have contradictions. Um, every character in the siege has a contradiction. Uh, Sarah Bumgardner, uh, she's a loose woman, but she's also vulnerable. Uh, Henry Yoakum, he's a, a thug with a uniform, but uh, he's very protective of Tom Hemmings. And uh, Pomeroy, uh, he's like a lot of gang members who are trapped in their persona. Um, he's utterly foul-mouthed. Uh, some readers can't get beyond uh, his uh, misogyny and his language. But he's also a very kind and gentle character, and he hides these traits even from himself. So I think the key to characterization is dichotomy. Um, create a character with a contradiction, and you're going to have a character that readers are going to relate to. Fail to do that, um, and uh, you've got an archetype, a, a stereotype that readers aren't going to remember. So pursue the contradiction in, in the character. Okay. So that that is one thing that you do when you develop your characters. Um, you look at that. Because some people will start with an outline. Some people will do character sketches. Some people take bits and pieces of people that they really that they actually know and mold them together to help shape this one character uh in a story. Um can you all, all my how, characters how are, all your characters all, all my are, characters are composites or are, are are composites. Uh I'm I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, all, so all your characters are made up of people you've actually met. Yes. Yeah. Um and uh, there's probably about half a dozen uh, people that go to make up every every character. You take the most interesting parts ah. of uh, the people you you know. Yes, I've heard other writers who who, who do that as well. And I, we probably all do it subconsciously. Now that said, James, how can mm-hmm. you tell that a story works? You worked on the siege for ten years. When do you come to a place when you say? I'm finished. The story is ready. It works. Are there any specific signs that you look for before you consider a story completely finished? Usually when you think a story or a book is finished, it isn't. Um, I thought the siege was finished, and then I sent it to, to my publisher and I found out it wasn't uh, finished. There was still a whole lot of work to done, be done on it. So we made five subsequent drafts of the siege, and then we had a very thorough wow. uh, proofreading also. I think it's important for writers to realize that uh, you can't do it alone. Um, you need input from people whose opinions that you trust. So uh, I would urge uh, writers, uh, first of all, they need to set up a schedule. Second of all, they're going to have to decide what they're going to give up in order to write uh, because um, it's time-consuming. And then uh, I would urge them to join a literary group. And and this this is kind of like a marriage. You have to find the right people because uh, the wrong people could be toxic to your uh, 
creative efforts. Um, and then be prepared to revise. Every um, story I've written, I've probably gone over it uh, two or three hundred times. And then after you go over it, solicit feedback. Uh, you won't be able to use all of the feedback, uh, but solicit feedback and then take that feedback that resonates uh, with you. Because um, unbeknownst to yourself, once you've completed a work of fiction, you, you have blind spots that you're not aware of. You're going to need um, content editors. And then once the book is done, you're going to need proofreaders because uh, your book is probably filled with typos that you've reviewed the book so many times that you don't see them anymore. So you're going to need somebody with an independent mind to proof it for typos. So it's a huge process. Mm-hmm. And then once you're done, uh-huh. once you're done, you face the challenge of marketing, and that's a, that's a whole new mountain to climb. <laughs> <laughs> You want to get a good book out there, a great story, and put tons of work into it. And I think it shows the reader that you respect the, the reader. When you when you when They can tell, even if they may not like the story, they can see you put a lot of effort into it, that you respect your craft and you respect the reader. When you put out a story that you just threw together, it's almost like you didn't really respect the reader or the craft. Now, your writing style is very open, engaging, and candid. Does that come natural, or do you really have to work at that? You've got to write the stuff you're afraid to write, um, because unless you're completely honest uh, with the reader, um, you're probably not going to succeed. A, um, an editor, uh, his name is John Gist, he's with Red Savina Review, he said he only likes the work that's written in blood. And um, if you're going to really engage the reader, if you're going to make your stories unforgettable, you have to write in blood. And um, I've uh, formed a, a good relationship with John Gist. He's written the uh, introduction uh, to my new book, A Second Less Capable Head. Uh, he's published several of my stories, and he really drove it home to me. Write, write your stories in blood, or your stories are not going to be real, and, and your stories are not going to be memorable. Mm. Now, what, what have readers been saying about Call Me Pomeroy? What have, what have you been hearing from readers about the story? Um, a few readers can't get past the language. And they say, I really, really hated this. Most readers, though, they're cool. They understand uh, that I need the language to create the dichotomy of the character. And um, they really relate. My my publisher describes Pomeroy as Don Quixote on on Viagra. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, Khan Ha a uh, Vietnamese writer that I have a good relationship with says Pomeroy flows like lava and I really mm. really appreciated that uh, compliment. Oh, yes. Another um, writer 
um, describes Kwame Pomeroy as uh, a fart in the scuba tank of institutional decorum. <laughs> oh, goodness. Empty <laughs> uh, Singh says he is the anti-hero whose time has come. Um, Pomeroy, to me, he, he was inspired by um, the second, by William Butler Yeats. Uh, the poem starts out, uh, Things cannot hold, the center falls apart, mere anarchy is loosed upon the land. The blood-drenched tide is loose, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are filled with a passionate intensity. And it finishes up, and what rough beast its hour come around at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. In writing Pomeroy, I have tried to create an embodiment of Yeats's rough beast slouching towards Bethlehem to be born. And I think on a lot of levels, Tom is, uh, Pomeroy is like a, a, a child about to be born. Yeah, at 57. Now, how did working as an editor, uh, we haven't told our listeners, we've got about seven minutes left in today's show, but how did working as an editor influence, how did that influence and shape your writing? Because you had to look through the lens of an editor at other people's work and then come back to the other side and, and, and be a writer. How did that, how did, how did your work as an editor help shape your writing? Well, it helps you learn the craft um, because when you spot um, the um, um, inconsistencies in other people's writing, you're able to um, spot them in your own better. Um, it's a very good exercise. If uh, any of your listeners have the opportunity to work with a journal, I would, I would certainly recommend it. But I've uh, been able to identify the many, many traps that a writer can uh, fall into that prevents his work from um, reaching its fullest potential. Uh, common traps, um, excessive use of adjectives, too many ornamental adverbs. A lot of adverbs are uh, simply redundant, uh, such as uh, he shouted loudly, you don't need the loudly. Um, they tell instead of showing, and a lot of them try to explain their endings. Uh, they can write a very good story, and then at the end, they add a superfluous paragraph trying to explain their stories. And this, to me, shows a lack of confidence. Um, you need to finish up your stories with a nice, tight, nice, tight image. You, you don't need to put a bow around them. Mm. Okay. What did it feel like to be nominated for two Pushcart Awards? And congratulations. What was that experience like for you? Oh, it's fantastic. Um, it's validation. And I've been waiting for validation for a long time. And when you get a Pushcart nomination, you're walking about uh, five feet off the ground for maybe uh, two weeks. Mm. It's fantastic. But, uh, and then again, the prizes are only important for promotional reasons. Um, the joy of the writing is in the process, and uh, the joy of uh, writing is when you hear from readers who have been touched by your by your work, 
and you want to share it with other people. Mm. Now, how did writing the siege and call me Pomeroy and your latest book, if you can give us a title again, how did writing these three books, how did it change you as a writer and as a person? It gave me a sense of validation. Uh, There was a time when I wondered, why have I been given this talent if the world does not uh, rise up and and take notice? So what it's uh, created in me is a sense of relief. Finally, finally, I have consummated my art. Finally, I'm being recognized. Finally, all that uh, hard work and sweat and learning and relearning and perfecting my craft uh, have produced results. So I'm changed in in that I I feel a sense of validation and also a rather profound sense of relief. Good good for you, good for you. And hopefully other of our listeners can have that experience at some point in their writing careers as well. Now, where can our off-the-shelf listeners get a copy of your books? Okay. Um, you can get uh, copies of um, the books on Amazon. Just go on Amazon, type in the name of the book, and um, it'll pop right up. Type in my last name, Hannah, if you need to. And um, you can order them on Kindle uh, for for a nominal price. And uh, there are also paperback copies uh, available of um, Siege and Call Me Pomeroy. And uh, in in a few weeks, there will also be a paperback copy available of A Second Less Capable Head. Um, What's the title? Can you say uh, the title of your other book again? The second. What is the title uh, of the second? A Second Less Capable Head. And uh, the um, title story is about a Tea Party activist who wakes up one morning and finds he is growing another head. It has a Kafka-like quality to it. And uh, he wants the, um, um, his doctor to take it off, but the government won't let him take it off because this is innocent life, and he's not supposed to join uh, to uh, destroy innocent life. Then compounding the problem, uh, Trixie, his girlfriend, forms a romantic attachment to the head, I think because it looks kind of like Robert Downey Jr. So uh, <laughs> the... <laughs> oh, my God. So the um, frustrations of the Tea Party activist, whose name is Virgil Plyright, grows as the head continues to grow. And uh, finally, the letter is... The uh, head is so big that Virgil starts to resemble the letter Y. And then it's D-Day. He's got to figure out how he's going to get this head taken off him without going to jail for murder. Wow. Now, if you're on any social networks, can you tell us where our listeners can find you online? Yeah. Um, I've got a website, um, but that's still in development. Um, You can find me on the Sandhill Review Press website. Um, It's got some uh, vignettes, also, uh, how to survive as a prison guard, uh, stuff like that. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on my Amazon Authors page, and uh, it's got all three books. Uh, Goodreads also has uh, all three books. Uh, Book Daily. Um, I'm in the um, Emerging Writers there. 
And uh, right now, uh, a second less capable head is number two, and Pomeroy is number 12 among, among the uh, emerging authors. Um, also, there's a lot of interviews online. If you just type in James Hunter interviews, you'll find uh, interviews with Empty Sync Publishing, with Red Savina Review, and uh, a number of other uh, sources. Okay. So, um, we want to thank Jen- – oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So I'm all, all over the Internet right now. It's pretty pretty easy to find me. Okay. We want to thank James Hanna. He's the author of the books The Siege, Call Me Pomeroy, and I think he's, this is most recent is the is is it the second less capable head if if I'm if I'm getting that yeah. correctly and you can find you can find him at the Sand Hill yeah. Review website. I must go ahead. Yeah, and uh, Amazon's probably probably the best best place to go. It's it's got book excerpts and you you can look through the excerpts and decide if uh, you want to purchase the book. So Amazon.com and and his writing is a treat, and then the website willwriteforfood.org and he has another website which is in development. But again, James Hanna, go over to Amazon.com. He's the author of the Siege, Call Me Pomeroy, and a second less a second less capable head. You really are going to you've given yourself a treat to uh, enjoy his work. So we want to thank him for being here with us, and we want to thank each of you, our listeners, for being here with us here at Off the Shelf. And remember today's thought, if you wait until you're ready, you'll be waiting the rest of your life. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. Remember, you are awesome. You are amazing. See you back here next Saturday, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or New York City time. Please tell book lovers everywhere, tune in to Off the Shelf, 11 a.m. in the morning. We've got another great guest lined up for you next Saturday. Thank you so much, James. Bye for now, James. I'll shoot you an email. Okay, thank you for having me. It's been great. Thank you.